Petrichor is apparently the description for that. It is the smell of fresh rain. So the reason I share these words with you guys is because I want to share with you guys a brand 20 years from now. And that word is a faithling, okay? Now, for those of you guys that remember the SAT analogy section, um, a little bit of a throwback here. The next one. All right. Duckling is to duck as faithling is to... All right, very cool. Pass your SATs. Um, I'm going to show you guys a quick video on this one, and then we'll talk a little bit more about that. Oh, no. So Look at the one that made it, watching all the other ones. Oh! <laughs> Look at that! Oh my god! <laughs> oh, they're trying so hard! Should we help them? No! <laughs> Look, they're giving up. <laughs> that mom better come down the stairs. So cute. Then, then they're gonna get scared. I feel like being far away is better. I get a view of all of them. Oh, they're doing it. Look at them. Some of them. I wish she's just going to leave them. <laughs> oh, the lad. There we go. Last one. She knows. How cute is that? Yay! <laughs> <laughs> all right. Awesome. Yay. They all made it. So <laughs> the reason why I wanted us to see that a little bit, right, is I think sometimes our journey of uh, faith and following Jesus can feel a little bit like that, right? I know sometimes I feel like those ducklings that are trying to follow Jesus, and I just keep jumping upstairs and failing and falling on my back and kicking my feet around. Um, the reason I wanted to introduce this word faithling um, is because five times throughout the book of Matthew, Jesus uses the term, oh, you of little faith, right? And um, that's kind of how our English translation has it. And, some, and as Steve has been saying again and again in our series, this term, you of little faith, um, is kind of a gentle rebuke, right? I think in the English, you of little faith sometimes sounds really harsh, but it's really one word oligopistos, right? It's a compound word combining this idea of little and faith together. So little faiths or little faithling is kind of the way I want us to see that today. Um, because 
It's a gentle rebuke that essentially says to his disciples, you have faith, but it's kind of really small, right? You're like a little duckling. You're a faithling. And it's an encouragement to keep going, right? That there's more to press into. Um, someone in our discovery group a couple of weeks ago, as we were you know, looking at Matthew, we were looking at how the disciples kept missing the point about who Jesus is and what he's trying to do, right? The, we were looking at the passage where he talks about the leaven of the Pharisees, and the disciples are like, oh man, we forgot to bring the bread, we forgot sandwiches. And this person in our group pointed out the fact that sometimes it's so easy for us to kind of pick on the disciples, like, oh man, these guys don't get it. But it's actually really comforting to see their confusion. Because if we're honest, a lot of times we ourselves struggle to get what Jesus is doing. We too are confused about that. And as she pointed out, she said that it's freeing to realize that Jesus is so patient and gracious to us in the midst of our confusion. That even when we are little faithlings struggling to jump up the stairs and follow him, he's there patiently waiting for us and inviting us to more. So that's kind of the big thing that I want us to see today, is this idea that we are faithings on a journey, and we're going to kind of press into that a little bit more. Before anything else, let's just pray together. Heavenly Father, God, as we come together this morning, uh, we just want to magnify your name. God, you are so amazing and so gracious and so patient towards us. Um, We pray this morning that you would indeed stir in us, Lord, that we would be curious followers of you, Lord, um, little faithlings, that even when we don't get it, we want to know more, Lord, and we just pray that your spirit would lead us in this time. Um, yeah, would you have your way in us, God? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you have your Bibles, let's turn to Matthew chapter 17. We'll be in verses 14 to 27 today. And a little bit of background on this, right? So we've been in Matthew pretty much all year. And we've been in Matthew because we want to lay a foundation for what the kingdom of God looks like, for what the community of believers looks like. We want to lay a foundation to see how it is that Jesus engages with the people around him and how it is that Jesus loves on and ministers to the people around him. In this kind of last section of Matthew, we've been talking about this idea of a new community. And what we're seeing here in this section, this is like the last um, few months of Jesus' life, And we see Jesus really ramping up his rhetoric here, okay? Um, In these last few chapters, Jesus is really ramping up and being very clear about who he is and what he's come to do and what his kingdom is about. But at the same time in this section, repeatedly we see how confused the disciples are, right? How confused his followers are. And as I was thinking about this, I was kind of wondering, right? Like if I'm the author of Matthew, writing sometime in the first century to the early church, why would I write like paragraph after paragraph after paragraph about how confused the first followers of Jesus were. Why am I writing that? What's the point? And I think the point that he puts us in here is because the good news of the kingdom, right, the good news of Jesus runs counter to our natural inclinations, right? The author of Matthew intentionally wants us to see how hard it was for the first followers of Jesus to get it, right? As Steve talked about last week, the Jews had a particular vision for what the Messiah would be about. For hundreds of years, the Jews had been hoping for their Messiah, their Savior, to come and to overthrow Rome, the oppressive power that they were under, and to reestablish Israel as a nation of glory and power. That's what they were hoping for. Hundreds of years of this hope. And when Jesus shows up on the scene, Jesus says, yes, I am the Messiah. I am the Savior and the Chosen One. But my kingdom looks different from this. 
Right? My kingdom looks different from what you expected. And that's hard to swallow. Right? Can you imagine if you and your families and your great-grandparents and your great-great-great-great-parents and everyone in your family lineage has been looking forward to a particular way things were going to work out? And then when the Messiah shows up, he says, I'm the Messiah, but it's not going to work out quite like you expected. Right? That's difficult, and it takes time to catch on to what he's trying to do. Right? And just as it was difficult for the earliest followers of Jesus, and just as it is difficult for the early church, I think it's difficult for us today, if we're honest. Right? We all have our own vision about how life is supposed to work out. We all have our own ideas and hopes about what God is going to do. And yet when Jesus shows up with his kingdom, he says it often looks different from what you expected. And the question for us this morning as little faithlings is, are we on this journey to understand that? Right? Do we get it? In Matthew chapter 17, verses 14 to 27, we're going to look at three scenes here, okay? three separate scenes. And in each scene, we're going to see Jesus and his good news of the kingdom. We're going to see one of the ways in which the disciples kind of failed to understand it as good news. And then we want to see the interaction between Jesus and his disciples. We want to see Jesus' patience and grace and invitation for them to continue following him. Let's take a look at scene one. Right, scene one is this, good news, Jesus is the Savior, not you. And we're going to read verses 14 to 20 together. It goes like this. When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire, into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of the boy, and he was healed at that moment. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, because you have so little faith. There's that word, little faith, links, oligopistos. Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. All right, so that's scene one. Right now, as I was reading this, the very first question that comes to my mind is, why does Jesus respond the way that he does here, right? Like this guy's coming and saying, you know, my child is, is sick, he has seizures, and your disciples couldn't heal him, right? And Jesus responds with you unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? Seems kind of harsh, right? Like what's going on here? Um, this exact same event, story, right, is also captured for us in Mark chapter 9. And Mark chapter 9 gives us a little bit more details around what's going on. So the first thing you'll notice is that in verse 14 here, it says, when they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him, right? Now, who's in this crowd? Mark chapter 9 tells us the scene goes something like this, right? That a man, the man brought his son to the disciples. The disciples couldn't heal him. And then the crowds gathered, and then the teachers, the religious leaders of the time, were in that crowd arguing with the disciples, right, about why they couldn't cast out that demon. And that's when Jesus shows up and walks up to the crowd and says, what are you guys arguing about? And then this man comes to Jesus and brings his son, right? And so when it says that there's a crowd here, you have to realize that this isn't just a crowd that's kind of there waiting for Jesus to do something, right? In this crowd are the teachers of the law who were opposed to Jesus and wanted to see Jesus fail. Right? 
And so when Jesus says, you unbelieving and perverse generation, he's calling out this crowd here, right? The word unbelieving here, it's not little faith. It is apistis. It is no faith, right? Faithless. And there's a big difference here between faithlessness and little faith, right? The faithless want to see Jesus fail, right? The little faiths want to see, be a part of what Jesus is doing, even if they don't get it, right? And so that's kind of the first thing that we see here. And it's in the midst of this, as I was looking at this passage, Jesus' response, it really struck me about how amazing Jesus is, right? So often we think of Jesus' suffering only as that moment when he was on the cross. But do you realize that Jesus, right before this, had that behind-the-scenes moment where he was transfigured in, like, all his glory, and he's there with Moses and Elijah, and he is God the Son, right? And then he steps back into the nitty-gritty mess of the world, and he's surrounded by people who are confused about who he is. He's surrounded by people who want to see him fail, who don't recognize him as God, and this is the life that he's living in. Right? And I think it's amazing that Jesus is so humble that he steps into our brokenness and walks with us in the midst of our brokenness, even as he's on his way to the cross. So Jesus here tells the father to bring the son to him, and he heals him. Right? He heals the boy like that, and the boy is healed. Now, the disciples come to Jesus in private, right? And then they're kind of asking the question, like, Jesus, like, why couldn't we cast it out? Right? And here Jesus calls them little faith, little faithlings. Now, what is it that the disciples are confused about, right? Why couldn't they cast it out? Again, Mark 9 here gives us a little bit more context. Um, at the end of the section where Jesus says, nothing will be impossible for you, in Mark, he adds, because this kind, this kind of demon, only comes out with prayer, right? Now, that suggests that essentially the disciples were trying to cast out this demon, but not by prayer, right? In other words, they weren't looking to God to be the one to do the work. And now, if you remember several chapters back, Jesus had commissioned his disciples to go out and to heal the sick and to proclaim the good news and to cast out demons. And they had done all of that and they had come back and they were super excited about it, right? And so here you can imagine the disciples are kind of like, man, we've done this. We got this, right? And so they're engaging in the work of the kingdom, but without the power of the king, right? They're in that state where they're like, I know what I'm doing. I've done this before. We got this and we don't need you anymore, God. And Jesus here is reminding them that's not how it works. The power comes from Jesus because he is the one that transforms us, right? He is the one who heals. And I think if we're honest, we kind of do this all the time too, right? Like the first time you engage in something, whether it's ministry, whether it's raising a kid, whether it's taking a test, the first time you engage in something, we're probably like super freaked out and we're like, God, we need you, right? And we're relying on him and his power. But when we start getting comfortable, when we start feeling like we've been there, we've done that, we start to feel like we got this. Like, God, don't worry about it. I got this, right? And we start trusting in our own power. And I think that's when we miss out on the work that God really wants to do because he is the only one that saves. He is the only one that heals. And here's a reminder for us as disciples, as little faithlings, that we would trust in the power of God and not in ourselves. Right? Faith isn't about having faith in ourselves. It's about who our faith is in and that faith needs to be placed in Jesus, right, in God, the one who is powerful. Now, Jesus has a lot to say about faith here. Um, we're going to look a little bit at this, right? He says here that, you know, if they have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, right? A faith that moves mountains. What does that mean? 
Right, Jeff shared a little bit about the upcoming men's retreat, right, August 23rd to 25th. Make sure you sign up. Um, it's going to be in Tahoe, right? It's going to be in Tahoe. So is Jesus saying here that if the men's planning team just has enough faith, we can shorten that two-hour drive by bringing Tahoe to us? Right? Like, what is Jesus saying here? No, Jesus is using this as a hyperbole, right? He's saying that even the smallest amount of faith, when it's placed in the right person, Jesus, right, can accomplish amazing things. It can accomplish amazing things. And when he says that nothing will be impossible for you, right? Now, how many of you guys have seen the movie Ratatouille? Show of hands. I'm about to ruin it for you guys, so. Um, so if you guys know in Ratatouille, right, Gustel, like his mantra is anyone can cook, right? Like that's his mantra. And the food critic, Ego, is like, doesn't like that, right? He's like, what are you talking about anyone can cook? But it's at the end of the movie when he realizes that the little rat can cook that Ego says that he finally realized that when Gusto says that anyone can cook, he doesn't mean that just anyone can cook. He means that a great cook can come from anywhere, right? And I think that's something here too. When Jesus says that nothing will be impossible for you, a lot of times we make the mistake of thinking that this means that if I just have enough faith, everything will work out. Like everything is going to be fine. Whatever I put my mind to, if I just have enough faith in God, it's going to be okay. And that actually gets us in a lot of trouble, right? Because then when we start dealing with sicknesses or pains or trials, and we have faith that God's going to heal us, and then the healing doesn't come, we start to doubt, right? We start to wonder, man, what's going on here? Do I not have enough faith? Right? So it's important here to recognize that when Jesus says nothing will be impossible for you, he's not saying that everything's going to work out. He's saying that anything can happen, right? That nothing is beyond God's power to do it. But he's not saying that just whatever you want to do, it's going to work. Do you guys kind of see that? But at the same time, this is an incredible promise, right? Because as we look out at the world around us and we know that God's kingdom is moving, we should be excited to realize that there's no barrier too big for God to move, right? Because our faith is in a God for whom nothing is impossible. And so God can and does move mountains. Second scene, verses 22 to 23. And here we want to see that the kingdom intentionally wins by losing. Okay. When they came together in Galilee, he, being Jesus, said to them, The Son of Man, a.k.a. Jesus, is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. Now what's going on here? This is the second time that Jesus is telling his disciples, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and they're going to crucify me, and then I'm going to come back to life, right? Now, if you guys remember last week, the first time Jesus said this, what happened, right? Peter rebukes him, and Peter's like, Jesus, that is not going to happen to you, right? And then Jesus rebukes Peter and says, get behind me, saying, you have your mind set on the things of man and not on the things of God, okay? So then now this time here, Jesus is telling them again, right, this is what's going to happen, so I think the disciples at this point have learned it's probably not a good idea to rebuke Jesus and tell him he's wrong, right? And so instead, they're just filled with grief, right? And I think this grief, maybe it's because they're so sad he's going to die and they just completely miss the fact that he's going to come back from the dead. I think a large part of it is still their idea of the Messiah is a conquering king who's supposed to overthrow Rome, right? Just a few pages later, Jesus is actually going to remind them again about this exact same thing, right? And so three times Jesus has to tell them this. And so the disciples are filled with grief. All the other gospels say that they don't get it, right? And it's because their mindset is still stuck on this idea of overthrowing Rome when Jesus is trying to do something way bigger than that, 
right? What is Jesus trying to do? Well, the real enemy here isn't just the oppressive empire of Rome, right? The real en enemy here is the oppressive kingdom of darkness and of sin, right? And Jesus is going to the cross because it's at the cross, in his death and in his resurrection, that he is actually overthrowing and overcoming the power of darkness. Man, that is way better than overthrowing Rome, right? Jesus is doing something way bigger here. Last week, Steve asked us and encouraged us to think about our better story, right? That Jesus invites us into a better story. But oftentimes, entering that better story involves letting go of our ideas of what things were supposed to look like, right? In order to lose our lives in order to gain it in Jesus, right? So this idea of intentionally winning by losing, like, what does that mean? Well, let's first take a look at the flip side. What does it mean to win by winning? Okay, it means, I think we're very used to winning by winning, right? Like, that's how um, our culture operates, and especially in Davis, because we are so success-driven, right? We're always looking to win by winning, right? I want to win on the basketball court. We want to be the smartest students. We want to have the best jobs. We want to be the best parents possible. We want our kids to go to the best colleges possible, right? And while all of these things can be good and they can be blessings from God, I think there's an amazing principle here that we see when Jesus talks about going to the cross, right? If it's in his death and resurrection that we see the culminating victory, right, of God's kingdom come, there's a principle here which is this that God delights to use the weak and foolish things of the world in order to advance his kingdom, right? That God intentionally wins by losing according to the principles of the world. And I think this is profound for us, right? Because I think we all get this, but do we really get it, right? Or are we like the disciples here who understand that, okay, I guess Jesus has to go to the cross, so I'm not going to rebuke him this time, but... I'm still not excited about this, right? I'm just grieved over the fact that this is how the kingdom works. Like, dang it, the kingdom works this way, right? But I think there's something amazing here when we look at Paul, when he says that he wants to know Christ in his death and resurrection. He wants to know Christ in his suffering because it is in the weak and foolish things of the world that we so often get to magnify the amazing grace and power of God at work in us. And so for us in our lives, this is good news because for real, we all are weak. Right? And we all struggle, and we are, are foolish, and we fail. And yet it's precisely in those moments that we so often get to experience the grace of God and then get to proclaim it to the world around us so that people see not how great we are, right? not how great you are, not how great I am, but how great our God is. Right? And that he was doing something way bigger than just giving us a successful life. No, he wants to overcome the powers of sin and darkness in this world. Right? There's an invitation for us to get to step into that as his followers. Scene three, we're going to look at verses 24 to 27 here. And the takeaway for us here is this, that Jesus is bigger than your institutional boxes. Right, now let's take a look at this. After Jesus and his disciples arrived at Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma temple tax came to Peter and asked, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, he does, he replied. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon? That's Peter's name also. He asked, from whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own children or from others? From others, Peter answered. Then the children are exempt, Jesus said to him. But so that we may not cause offense, go to the lake and throw out your line. Take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. All right, like what's going on here, right? Why are we talking about taxes? 
Well, this is also really interesting is that out of all the Gospels, this is the only Gospel that has this story in here. Um, and Matthew, the author of this Gospel, actually happened to be a tax collector. So maybe that's why he put this in here, because he loves taxes. Um, but there's something here that I want to see, right? So the first thing, what is the temple tax? So in Exodus chapter 30, it kind of lays out for us what this temple tax was. It's essentially a tax that was taken at the time of a census, and subsequently um, throughout the Old Testament is essentially taken every year, and it was for the support of the temple, okay? Now, what is the temple? Well, the temple is at the core and heart of all Jewish worship, right? The temple is where the sacrifices were held. The temple was where God's glory resided and presence resided, right? That's what the temple was. So this is a huge deal, right? And keep in mind that Jesus and the current temple leaders don't really get along, right? They're on a collision course, and it's because Jesus feels like the temple leaders have been leading the people of Israel astray, right? And so they're on a collision course, and it's the temple leaders who are going to crucify Jesus ultimately, right? So this isn't just a question like, hey, do you pay your taxes? This is a loaded question about Jesus. Who do you support, right? Like, are you for the temple or not? It's a loaded question. And the funny thing is, Peter kind of misses the fact that this is a loaded question, Right, the question comes to Peter, and Peter answers with like a, yeah, he pays it, right? Just like affirmative. Yes, of course he pays it, right? Because Peter assumes here that Jesus operates under the institutional kind of powers of the day, right? There's the temple. This is how it works. This is where God's presence resides. Everyone supports the temple. Everyone is under the temple. And so, of course, Jesus is part of that, right? But then when Peter gets home, Jesus is first to talk, and he says, right? And he basically asks him, like, how do taxes work, basically, to Peter, right? And Peter's response is, okay, yeah, it's family members don't pay taxes. It's the other people who pay the taxes. And Jesus' answer is, therefore, since I am God the Son, right, and you all are my family, we don't have to pay the taxes, right? The point here that Jesus is making is that he's way bigger than the temple, right? Jesus elsewhere says that something greater than the temple is here. And Peter just completely missed that because he assumed that Jesus operates underneath that. And Jesus is saying, I'm way bigger than the temple, right? I'm way bigger than that. Now, the fish part is super strange, right? It seems like a really, really, really random miracle. Um, read a lot of commentary on there, a lot of crazy hypotheses on what this fish means. Um, I'm not sure I'm convinced by any of them necessarily. But I think there is one thing here that we see. So first of all, the four drachma coin, right? It is essentially four uh, days of wages, okay? So it's not like an insurmountable amount of money that Peter couldn't go and like just go fishing for four days and then pay the taxes, right? So what is Jesus doing here? Why does he need a miracle here? Well, I think anytime Jesus does a miracle, he's trying to show something about himself right, and who he is. And I think here, just as Jesus was trying to show Peter in his teaching that Jesus is way bigger than the temple, same way with this miracle, Jesus is saying that all of creation is in fact under him, right? that he controls all of creation. Jesus is way, way, way bigger than what Peter expects. And I think that's actually really good news. Right? Sometimes for us who like control, we don't like it when our little boxes get blown up. Right? We like things to fit neatly and comfortably. But it can actually be really good news to realize that Jesus is way bigger than that. I'll kind of give you an example, um, just in my own life, uh, as an analogy. So for those of you that know my wife, Joy, right, uh, she is really awesome, and she's also wonderfully weird. 
Okay? Now, don't worry. This is Joy approved. She said I was, it was okay if I said that. Um, but when Joy and I were dating, right, like, she was only kind of weird, like, about the same level of weird as me, right? And then when we got married, I realized that she was, like, a whole other level of weird. And we have this debate all the time about who's weirder, but whatever, right? Like, and at first, like, you're, like, in marriage now, right? You're married. We're in this. And then I'm like, whoa, she's, like, really weird, right? And... And it blows away my little boxes of what marriage is supposed to look like, right? Like if somebody asked me, oh, what are you looking forward to in marriage? My answer was not that my wife is going to be wonderfully weird, right? Like I had my little defined boxes of like, this is what marriage looks like. But the crazy thing is, as I've come to know Joy more, I've really come to appreciate her wonderful weirdness. Like she's just a bundle of joy and brings happiness to our house and our family in ways that... I could never have planned for myself, right? And in those ways, it's awesome. And if I had actually gotten things my way according to my nice, neat little boxes, like my marriage would be pretty boring, right? But it's because of how wonderfully weird Joy is that my boxes have been exploded and marriage is way more awesome, right? And I think in the same kind of way here, when Jesus blows up our little boxes here, right? Like Peter assumes that Jesus operates under the temple framework. And Jesus is saying, man, like, Peter, I am God the Son, and I'm inviting you to be family. And as family, this thing looks so different, right? Like, we have this great freedom in Christ and in who God is, and he's inviting us to that. And so I think there's good news there is that as we get our little institutional boxes blown away by who Jesus is, we're constantly invited to experience more and more of how exciting and how joyful that can be to be with Jesus. So as we walk through these three scenes, Hopefully you guys see a little bit about how the good news of the kingdom runs contrary to our natural inclinations, right? Because in just these three scenes, we've seen how, you know, Jesus challenges our savior complex, right? Challenges the fact that it's not you that saves, it's Jesus that saves. He redefines what victory looks like to help us realize that it's in the weak and foolish things of the world that God works and magnifies his name. And he's stretching our nice, comfortable frameworks about who he is and how he works. These things aren't easy, right? They're not easy. That's why it's written for us here. But there's an invitation for us to come, to press into that as little faithlings on a journey and to experience life with Jesus, right? In this section, we want to contrast the fact that there are sometimes those who don't get it, and then they say, I don't care, right? I don't get it, and I don't want to be about this, right? And that's faithlessness. But then there are those who say, I don't get it, and I'm confused, and I'm mistaken a lot, but I want to know more, right? Jesus, show me the way, right? And they come running to Jesus and asking Jesus the questions. Why couldn't we do this? And Jesus is teaching them and explaining to them. Now, what's our response to this as a community? I think the first thing is this, right? That for us as a church, we want to be a community where it's okay to not have the right answers all the time, right? It's okay to be confused about things. It's okay to not get it and to be real about it, right? And to be able to talk with others about it and be like, yeah, I don't get this or I'm struggling with this, right? The disciples struggled with it, but they struggled together. And Jesus was there leading them patiently. Steve said last week this idea of belonging before you believe, right? We want to be a place where people can come and hang out with Jesus, right? And be with him and be a part of this community even when we're still learning and we don't quite get it yet, because let's be real, we're all learning, right? I'm learning. 
I'm struggling, but working on it and following Jesus. And we want to do that together. And if you guys are here for the first time or you're visiting here, like, that is exactly why we are so excited that you're here with us this morning. It's because we want to journey together with you, right? We're all on this journey together. The second thing is this, as individuals, to realize and remember that Jesus is gentle and gracious, and he's inviting us to more, right? As little faithlings, the key is this, like, when we struggle, and when we feel confused, and when we get down on ourselves of like, man, why do I keep falling upside down on those steps when I try to follow Jesus, right? And when we feel like we're laying on our backs with our feet kicking in the air, there's a reminder there that Jesus is gentle and gracious towards us, right? He is gracious towards us. And that's also a reminder here that Jesus is inviting us to more, right? That he doesn't leave us to be satisfied laying on our back, kicking with our feet in the air. But he says, come to me, right? Follow me. And he's wanting to teach us these things. He's wanting us to get his kingdom and the good news of it. Right? And every day we follow Jesus, we get to experience that just a little bit more. We're being transformed by him. And man, that is so exciting because as we've seen it again and again in all three scenes, the kingdom of God is good news. And in many ways, it's way better news than we can even imagine. And he's inviting us to follow him in that. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father and Lord Jesus, as we looked at these three scenes here, and we are blown away by how patient you are and how humble you are to step into the midst of people who don't get it repeatedly, and yet you continue to invite us to come to you. God, for us as a community here, Lord, we pray that you would be blowing away and blowing up our little boxes of how things are supposed to be nice and neat. God, you're inviting us to something so much bigger, Lord, and we want to press into that. But God, it starts with the realization that we're not there yet. And so God, I pray that you would impress that upon our hearts this morning, that we would be able to be a community that's real with ourselves, real with you, and real with one another this morning to realize that we are like little faithlings, God. But in that, Lord, I pray that you would move us and give us that desire to long for you because as little faithlings, our hope is found not in ourselves figuring things out, but it's found in you as we look to you and see how beautiful you are, how good you are, how gracious you are, and how amazing you are, God. So that is the prayer of our hearts this morning. Lift your name on high. In Jesus' name, 